This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 210. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you. I'll also keep you informed on my life and my writing. We've got a lot to do this week, so let's get started. I'm switching up the order of the podcast today, because this is the last episode of The Lost in the Least. Before we get to the story, here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 4,068 words this week, over the course of 5.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 707 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 30 days without breaking my chain. This week I continued my work on None Shall Dwell Within. I had to deal with a tricky bit of the story this week, because this is the chapter where I'm reintroducing Jared as a viewpoint character. As you know if you've listened this far in The Lost and the Least, Jared's a character with a lot going on. There's his career as a police psychologist, his complicated history with the Psy Collective, his grudge against Malcolm for what happened to his wife, his secret soul-shaping power which even he doesn't know about, and now all the stuff that happened with the Brotherhood and the Shackled God. As if that weren't enough, he ended the Lost in the Least by going off with a member of the Psy Collective, so I have to figure out what has happened to him in the fifteen months that passed between the two books. Needless to say, I can't info-dump all this on the reader in the first chapter. That means I have to be selective, figuring out the most important parts of Jared's story to foreground for the role he's playing in this book. And, of course, I have to move the plot forward. The scene is running quite a bit longer than I expected, and I think I might end up moving some other scenes around, so I can let this one stand as a chapter by itself. The book is now in either Chapter 5 or Chapter 6, depending on where I split things up, and the manuscript is about 15,600 words. Over on the Patreon feed, I'm continuing to release my behind-the-episode commentaries on the last 19 episodes of The Lost and the Least. If you're a patron, you can listen to them in the Patreon app, or you can subscribe to the unique RSS feed that was created for you. Find a link to that feed at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I've also put up a cool bonus sketch that I rediscovered, which Ben Clifford created for Things Unseen. It gives us a better look at one of the hunters, the alien beasts that inhabit Hunter's Hollow. I've made this visible to all patrons at the $3 level or higher. Also, don't forget that I'm getting ready to send out this year's holiday cards. Everyone who becomes a patron before the end of November is eligible to receive a card, with original Metamore City artwork you can't get anywhere else. Just make sure your mailing address is up to date in Patreon by December 1st. And now, the story. 
Today I'm bringing you the conclusion of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, this story began running in episode 143, so you should go back there to hear this story from the beginning. You can also find earlier stories at metamorecity.com, chrislaster.org, and on Audible. The following recap will contain spoilers for my earlier novel, Making the Cut. About 15 years ago, Malcolm Ardvalos, the vampire prince of Metamore City, became interested in a biomedical startup company, Seraph Diagnostic Solutions. Seraph had made a major breakthrough in medical testing, developing a cheap and accurate assay for a crippling blood-borne illness. With these new test kits, the disease could be identified early enough to allow for much more effective treatment. Seraph stood to make a fortune and Malcolm wanted in. The Vampire Prince held a meeting with Seraph's founder, a savvy and charismatic half-elf named Seralina Greyhaven. Malcolm offered to buy Lena's company at a generous price, even keeping her on as CEO. But Malcolm's prospectus included a plan to drastically inflate the price of the life-giving assay, putting it beyond the reach of many who needed it. Malcolm intended to supplement this price-gouging strategy with a charity program led by the Church of Eternal Brotherhood, turning Seraph's revolutionary test kit into a tool for evangelism. This was not something Lena was willing to be a part of, so she refused to sell the company. But Malcolm is not the sort of person to just let things go. He embarked on a whisper campaign against Lena, shutting off all the sources of venture capital that Seraph needed to get off the ground. The value of the company plummeted. With their debts mounting and their cash flow drying up, Lena's partner sold his half of the company to Malcolm, which forced Lena back to the bargaining table. Malcolm agreed to save Lena's company and guarantee continued employment for her people, but at a price. Lena would have to step down from Seraph and become Malcolm's administrative assistant, a more polite term for a vampire's thrall. Malcolm spent the next several years systematically destroying Lena from the inside out. He crushed her will, her self-confidence, and most of her personality, brainwashing her into a timid, obedient slave. When it seemed that nothing remained of the woman she had been, he discarded her, giving her to his newest vampire fledgling, a telepath named Miriam Bakhtivar. Miriam had been turned into a vampire against her will, and only a command from her sire, Braddock, prevented her from committing suicide. Knowing that Miriam hated what she had become, Malcolm gave her Lena. He felt sure that Miriam would resist her vampiric hunger until she lost control of the beast inside her. When vampires lose control like this, the thralls they feed on always die. Malcolm didn't want Miriam to kill anyone he considered useful or important. But Miriam and Lena defied the odds. Lena gathered enough of herself to explain the danger to Miriam, and reluctantly, Miriam fed before she lost control. In the sharing that followed, Miriam saw what had happened to Lena and how Malcolm had broken her. Moved with compassion and empathy, Miriam took it on herself to rehabilitate Lena. She did not quite succeed in making Lena the woman she had been before, but over the course of about six months, 
she did build Lena up into a very capable seneschal, the vampire term for their most important mortal servant. Lena was now fanatically devoted to Miriam, and helped her learn how to live and maneuver in vampire society. After six months, Malcolm sent Miriam to capture some telepaths, who had been a recent thorn in his side, Brian Summers and one of his wives, Fiona Hinconnell. But Brian and Fiona had help from their friend Daniel, and together they defeated Miriam, driving a stake through her heart, just as Miriam had hoped they would. Fiona laid out Miriam's paralyzed body on their apartment balcony, where the sun would rise and turn her to dust. But Fiona had to leave to deal with another emergency, and by the time she made it back, the sun had long since risen, and no trace of Miriam remained. Meanwhile, following her mistress's last instructions, Lena took possession of all of Miriam's considerable financial assets, moving them to an offshore account. She freed all of Miriam's other thralls, making sure that they were delivered to a Psy Collective safe house, where they could be rehabilitated. Then Sarah Lena Greyhaven disappeared, and no one has seen her since. That was five years ago. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Epilogue Seralina Greyhaven returned to the White Widow's headquarters shortly before midnight. She took two municipal buses and three different subway trains to eliminate any possibility that she was being followed, but she still let out a sigh of relief when she was back behind the wards and heavy security doors that shielded the underground base. The guards at the entrance saluted her as she passed through the gauntlet of metal detectors, bomb sniffers, and enchantment sensors. The last of these beeped in warning as she stepped inside it, and she belatedly pulled out the comb holding up her long hair. She passed it to one of the guards on duty, and immediately her hair changed from black to its natural color, a shimmering, pale iridescence that resembled Mother of Pearl. She passed through the censor again without further incident. Two more guards waited behind another heavy door on the far side of the security checkpoint. She exchanged a salute with them, and continued past at a brisk stride, calling over her shoulder to the one on the right. With me, she said, and the guard fell into step behind her. They took a lift to her private quarters, which opened to her palm and retina scans. The guard went in first, turning on the lights as he went, one hand resting on the grip of his pistol. He came back about a minute later. All clear, milady. Thank you, Lena said. You're dismissed. One more exchange of salutes, and then the guard turned smartly on his heel and left. Once inside, Lena went to the bedroom closet, where a concealed latch opened a secret passage to another set of quarters. Lena's official lodgings were furnished in a sleek, modern, minimalistic style, but the bedroom she now stepped into was the opposite. Soft, warm lighting from shaded lamps, thick waziri carpets with intricate geometric patterns, 
a beaded curtain separating the bedroom from the living room beyond, a king-sized bed topped with a thick woven blanket. She went to the room's walk-in closet and switched on the light. A dozen white morning dresses hung there, with a dozen veils resting on mannequin heads on the shelf above them. Each dress was embroidered with the silver spiderweb pattern that was the White Widow's trademark. Lena stripped out of her cut-offs and halter top and put on her costume. She was getting faster at it after years of practice, and it only took her a few minutes. As each piece of clothing went on, Lena let a piece of herself fall away, her emotions stilling, her movements becoming more stately and refined her individuality sinking out of sight beneath the widow's persona. By the time she had settled the veil over her head, the mask was complete. Lena was gone, and only the white widow remained. The white widow exited her chambers by the front door, where two of her special attendants stood guard. These women dressed in identical white jumpsuits, their hair pulled back into matching buns, their faces adorned with a matching black eyeliner and silver eyeshadow. Each of them carried a pistol on one hip and a wand or arthana on the other. While the widow's guard themselves were not identical, their shared look gave them a sense of anonymity that made it difficult for other members of the organization to tell them apart. The white widow knew each of them intimately, however, and trusted them implicitly. To the holding cells she said. The attendants immediately fell into escort position, one in front and one behind her, and together they made their way to the depths of the complex. After passing through another layer of security, the white widow and her guards entered a long, brightly lit hallway lined with heavy steel doors. Each door had a narrow viewing port of reinforced glass near the top, and a slot for meal trays at the bottom. She went to the third door on the right, checked the viewing slot, and knocked twice before going in. The widow's guard waited outside. Her guest sat up on a narrow but comfortable bed, reading a hardcover book. There was a mug on the dresser next to him, still half full of some kind of herbal infusion. His cybernetic leg lay extended in front of him, while his natural leg was bent at the knee. The room also had a small desk with a chair and a table lamp, a sink, a toilet, a shower stall, and a spellcrafted pane of glass that resembled a window, though the room was hundreds of meters below ground. The figment generator on the glass was currently projecting an image of rolling green hills, with purple mountains in the distance. The old man looked up as she entered, his dark eyes narrowing. Kind of late for a visit, widow. I know, she said. I also know you don't sleep much, Mr. Kenning. May I? She gestured at the chair. He shrugged one shoulder, a slow, deceptively lazy-looking gesture, but she could sense the wariness beneath it. It's your house. She walked with a serene, steady gait over to the chair, turned it around, and sat on it folding her hands over her lap. "'I thought you might like to know,' she said, "'that Callie has convinced the Runners Guild to accept her stewardship of Kenning security. I have investigated her new employees, and they all seem competent. 
I believe the guild is in good hands. Silas Kenning took a deep, slow breath, then let it out again. He closed the book and set it aside. That is good news, he said. I'm not exactly sure why I should believe you, though. The white widow spread her hands. I have been entirely honest with you, sir. Given that I hope to hire you, it would be foolish to do otherwise. If you want me to think well of you, you might start with not keeping me in a cage. She inclined her head in a sideways nod, conceding the point. The circumstances are not ideal. I bear you no ill will. On the contrary, I have great respect for you. But as much as I detest what the Brotherhood did to you, they were right about one thing. Your investigation threatened gambits that I have in motion. Malcolm must be destroyed. We will all need to make sacrifices to achieve that goal. Silas closed his eyes and sighed, rubbing the bridge of his nose. You've said all this before. You know where I stand. You stand with your people, the White Widow said. You would do all you can to protect them. I know. In time, I hope I can show you that my way will be better for them than the world Malcolm has built. She smiled a little sadly. If not, at least I can keep you safe until the worst of the birthing pains have passed. She rose to her feet. Can I get you anything? He gave her another half-shrug. I wouldn't say no to a laptop computer and a Worldnet connection. She laughed briefly at that. I would gladly do it, if I didn't know you would be inside my security systems within the hour. He blew air between his lips. You flatter yourself. Fifteen minutes. Perhaps so, she agreed warmly. Anything else? He seemed to consider the question. Legs getting stiff cooped up in here. I could use some exercise. She bowed her head in a slow nod. We have a fitness room. I will make arrangements for you to use it. Does your leg need any special accommodations? Not every day. I'll need to do some preventive maintenance in a week or two. I'll see to it, she promised. Make a list of any tools you require. He nodded and opened his book again. Night Widow. She left Silas's room and continued down the hall to the last cell on the left. Again, she checked the viewing slot. This room was dark inside. She nodded to the widow's guard, and they went in ahead of her. The guards switched on the overhead light and rousted the room's occupant out of bed, dragging them roughly to their feet. The prisoner cursed and spat at the guards as they bent the androgyne's arms behind their back in a submission hold. Again, the white widow glided into the room, her demeanor all cool, restrained calm. From their position between the guards, Rowan Shaw glared hatefully up at her. This is a hell of a way to treat your allies, Shaw hissed. After all we did for you, attacking your enemies, bringing you the old runner, this is how you repay us? Bringing me Silas Kenning is the only reason you are still alive, the White Widow said her voice deceptively calm. You did not attack my enemies, Shaw. You murdered innocent people. 
And now Malcolm consolidates his power by killing your people in revenge. You played right into his hands. You made him look like the lesser evil. Shaw sneered at her. You think you're better than us? That you're this wise leader who's going to come in and save this city from itself? You're a damned fool. A naive child playing with explosives. Perhaps, the widow allowed. Perhaps I am wrong. Perhaps what I am trying to do will not work. But I believe a better world is possible. I have to. Shaw smiled. There was a fey light in the androgyne's eyes, something wild and fervent and dangerous. So do I, they said. The widow was silent for a long moment, watching Shaw through the screen of her veil. At last she gestured to her guards, and they released Shaw, letting the androgyne stand up straight. You will be pleased to know that I have decided to grant your request, the widow said. You and your companion will be escorted safely out of the city, to a location you designate. You must go tonight. Shaw rolled their shoulders, presumably trying to work out the residual pain from the double arm lock. That's fine. The sooner I'm away from here, the better. We need to get to the northern site. It's the same one where you sent the last shipment. Easily done, the widow said. The journey will not be comfortable, but it will be discreet. The immortal will not find you. Shaw nodded. We lost a lot of our arcane supplies in the tunnels. We'll be in touch with you soon about ordering replacements. Ah, the widow said. I'm afraid that will not be possible. We need those supplies for the fight against Malcolm. Shaw looked at her sharply. So bring in more. It's not like we aren't paying you enough. No amount of money will make me risk the wrath of Murakir Kunis, the widow said dryly. If you want more contraband, use your own connections to get them. Assuming there is anyone left that he and the vampires have not already slaughtered. She paused a beat, letting that sink in. No, Shaw. After this, our arrangement is at an end. If the Brotherhood ever returns to this city, I will count you as an enemy. Shaw's head snapped up as if they'd been slapped. The androgyne tried to take an aggressive step toward her, to get in her face, but the widow's guard caught them by the arms and held them back. You're making a mistake, widow, Shaw said, their tone low and dangerous. You think Murakir and his pawns have beaten us? We've been here for a thousand years. Cut down the tree if you want, but our roots go all the way to the hells. We'll be back, and we have long memories. The widow showed them a cold little smile. Mine is longer. She turned and headed for the door. Safe journey, Shaw. Pray to your God that we never meet again. The End Acknowledgements I started planning this novel in February 2013. After the events of Things Unseen, I knew that this story would be heading into territory that was new and unfamiliar for me as an author. 
post-traumatic stress, missing persons cases, serial murder, and the ways that cult leaders brainwash their followers. More than any story I had written before, The Lost in the Least would require a heavy amount of research. As with the latter chapters of Things Unseen, I am greatly indebted to J. Daniel Sawyer and Don Phoenix for their perspectives on post-traumatic stress and the effects of violence. Don provided additional background on modern therapy techniques, while Dan helped me to understand how trauma was likely to affect a police officer's career. The NPR program This American Life also provided valuable insights into post-traumatic stress with its episode Doppelgangers. Episode 484, January 11, 2013. I also owe Dan thanks for his research into conspiracies, something that he had to dig deeply into for his excellent Clark Lantham mysteries and his Cobra Khan Ascendancy series of sci-fi political thrillers. He helpfully passed on much of what he had learned to me, and this allowed me to figure out how the Brotherhood would eventually expose itself. Missing Persons' work is a subject that has surprisingly little written about it, given the magnitude of the problem. Carol Moore's book, The Last Place You'd Look, Roman and Littlefield Publishers, 2011, was a crucial resource for understanding how missing persons cases are performed, and, just as importantly, how and why the system fails to make connections between missing persons reports and unidentified bodies. The FBI's July 2008 report on serial murder, Serial Murder, Multidisciplinary Perspectives for Investigators, was very helpful in understanding the phenomenon of serial murder and how it is viewed by law enforcement. It includes some excellent notes on the common myths about serial killers and how they depart from the reality. Because this book also went deep into exploring Kate's character and personality, it was also important for me to understand the psychology of extroverts, since I am decidedly not one. Macy Santa Domingo's article, Six Things Every Extrovert Secretly Has to Deal With, was very helpful for getting inside Kate's head. It should be noted that having excellent resources does not necessarily guarantee excellent results in the finished product. Any factual errors, oversights, or inconsistencies you may find in this work are my own. This book also owes its existence to the generous contributions of my loyal fans. The amazing cover art was financed by an Indiegogo campaign in 2013. Special thanks to everyone who contributed. Katie Anderson, Ryan Barker, Jason Blythe, Bill Bowman, Bruce, Rick Costello, Maria Cicchetti, A.J. Downs, Chris Dykes, Ellen Day, Veronica Jaguer, Abigail Hilton, Taylor Kendall, Jarrett Kohler, Lucy LeBlanc, Lisa Morrison, Karen Nagel, Peter, J. Daniel Sawyer, Lisa Stone, Rosemary Tizzledown, Andrew Vaught, and the seven donors who chose to remain anonymous. Every time I look at the cover of this book, I remember the way you believed in me and supported me, even though at that point I hadn't produced a podcast in more than two years. In May 2015, I returned to podcasting with The Raven and the Writing Desk, a weekly fiction show that helped me reconnect with my fans and reignite my love for writing. It was this podcast, and the folks who listened to it, that inspired me to come back to The Lost and the Least and finish it. I had been intimidated by the story's size and complexity, 
and by the emotional depths it would require me to delve into, but with the weekly encouragement I received in voicemails, emails, and Facebook messages, I found the courage I needed to confront this beast of a novel. To everyone who listened to the show and sent in those messages, thank you. You kept me going when life tried to knock me down. A note of special thanks goes out to the patrons on my Patreon campaign, whose steady monthly support has made it possible for me to keep producing my weekly podcast, The Raven and the Writing Desk. Their generosity was particularly helpful in January 2016, when I was laid off from my job without warning. I did not get my first paycheck at my new job until the middle of April. In the intervening four months, the fans helped me, my partner, and my pets to stay alive, and eventually to relocate from Montana to Wisconsin. Extra special thanks to Karen, Craig, Stephen, Guardian Lion, Paul, Sarah, Cunum, Okaran, Geekery Maid, Shy, Rosemary, Deborah, and Andy for their exceptionally generous patronage. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a writer is only as good as his editors. I was fortunate enough on this project to have a wonderful team behind me, helping me coax this book into its final form. Karen Nagel was my alpha reader for this book, the first to read the chapters as I wrote them. Like the cheering section along the sides of a marathon, she was the one whose enthusiasm for the story gave me the extra oomph I needed to get to the finish line. Jim Miller, a 31-year veteran of the world of law enforcement, provided invaluable first-hand experience in police work. His comments were a crucial reality check to make sure that my cop characters thought, spoke, and acted like cops. Again, any remaining errors or departures from realism are my own. Abigail Hilton was once again my secret weapon for this book. She is a keen observer of character and story and she identified several critical points in the first draft where both had gone off the rails. Thanks to her excellent advice, I was able to add several scenes and rewrite several others, which plugged some plot holes, resolved character arcs that I had left dangling, and made Kate, Morgan, and John feel more true to themselves. This is a much better book because Abby got her hands on it, and you should all thank her by supporting her Patreon campaign, at patreon.com slash abigailhilton. You'll get access to her fantastic stories there as well, so it's really a win-win situation. Like things unseen before it, The Lost in the Least makes use of elements from the Metamore Keep shared story universe, which was the inspiration for Metamore City. Richter was created by Chris Deranged Kitsune Hextra, and Murakir belongs to Rick's, one of the first and most enthusiastic supporters of Metamore City among the original Metamore Keep crowd. It was Ricks who envisioned the concept of Murray's long hibernation cycle tied to the activity of an ancient evil, as well as the long-running grudge between him and Richter. If you'd like to see what Murray was like before immortality drove him half-crazy, I highly recommend Ricks's story cycle, Warding the Watchwoods, which you can find at www.metamorekeep.com. He also read the manuscript during the early beta stage, and provided many helpful ideas and suggestions. As always, my deepest thanks go out to Kevin Copernicus Dinahan for creating Metamore Keep and turning it loose for us all to enjoy, 
and to Christian O'Kane for keeping the setting running after Copernicus's departure. You made a wonderful sandbox for us to play in. Lastly, but certainly not least, my deepest thanks to my partner, my heart, my boon companion, Melanie. More than five years in, and the journey keeps getting better. I love you more than words can say. Chris Lester, Madison, Wisconsin, December 5th, 2017. This concludes the Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. This audio adaptation was recorded and mixed at Metamore Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. The book is copyright 2018 by Chris Lester, and the recording is copyright 2019 by Liminal Corvid Press. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Find more details on this license at creativecommons.org. All other rights are reserved to the author. Catherine Catane will return in the forthcoming novel, None Shall Dwell Within. Thank you for listening. <laughs>